Welcome to Espresso Prime, a podcast all about primes, short enough to listen to while you enjoy your cup of coffee. Hello, hello, it's the Sunday Scaries, and today's episode is about the most sinister and interesting crimes in South Carolina and North Carolina, including the first woman to be executed by lethal injection, a killer that wrote Amazon reviews on items he purchased and then buried the bodies with, a killer that confessed and warned of more killings to a newspaper, and so many more. So in this episode, we will mention two different episodes, and that is Christmas Crimes, episode 38, and Family Side, episode 47. This episode is sponsored by Javi Coffee, so grab your coffee to listen, and you can use code JAMIE581, JAMIE, J-A-I-M-E, 50081, for instant savings on all orders. So I am really excited for this episode, just from the cases involved, Um, It is, I think, going to be a longer episode, um, but let's get right into it because there is a lot to unpack here. First on the list, Donald Peewee Gaskins Jr., and he was born Donald Henry Parrott Jr. on March 13th, 1933. I am 99% sure we have included him on previous episodes. Surely there isn't too many huge criminals by the name of Peewee. I can't remember which one it was on, but I just... The name is so recognizable, and I know we've talked about him, but we had to include him on this list for South Carolina. So he was an American serial killer and rapist from South Carolina. He stabbed, shot, drowned, and poisoned more than a dozen people. Before his convictions for murder, he had a long history of criminal activities resulting in prison sentences for assault, burglary, and statutory rape. His last arrest was for contributing to the delinquency of a minor who was a 13-year-old who had gone missing in September of 1975. During their search for the missing girl, police discovered eight bodies buried in shallow graves near his home in Prospect, South Carolina. In May of 1976, a Florence County jury took only 47 minutes before finding him guilty for the murder of one of the eight victims, Dennis Bellamy, and sentenced him to death by the electric chair. Anything that only takes like under an hour, you know they're just a terrible, terrible person. So that death sentence, though, was overturned by the South Carolina Supreme Court in February of 1978, and rather than face a new trial, he pled guilty to the murders of Bellamy and eight other friends and associates. He was given 10 concurrent life sentences while in prison, though. He brutally murdered Rudolf Tyner, a fellow inmate on death row using C4 explosive. After his conviction for killing Tyner, he received his second death sentence, which was administered in September of 1991. Second on the list, on May 20th, 1967, a 32-year-old by the name of Annie Lucille Dedman was murdered. She had been strangled and raped. Her husband, Roger, was arrested and convicted of her murder. He was sentenced to 18 years in prison. Nine months later, in February of 1968, a 20-year-old by the name of Nancy Carol Paris was abducted. Her husband had reported her missing when she had taken their dog for a walk at night and never returned. Her nude body was later found on a riverbank beneath a bridge. She had been strangled and raped. There is becoming a pattern. On February 8th, 1968, a 14-year-old was killed. Her body was found buried under a brush pile with one foot sticking out. She had been strangled and raped. 
That same day, Leroy Martin anonymously called an editor of the Gaffney Ledger newspaper, giving him directions to locate two bodies and insisted that he was responsible for the murder of Annie, not her husband, who was currently convicted. The editor reported the information to the police. The police then found the bodies. Four days later, Martin contacted the editor again, and he was warning that there would be more murders. On February 13th, a 15-year-old was abducted and thrown into the trunk of a car while walking to a bus stop with her sister. Her sister was able to give a description of the vehicle to police. Police found the 15-year-old's nude body in a wooded area several days later. She had been strangled and stabbed to death. After Martin's arrest, Roger Dedman, who was three months into his prison sentence, was released on March 1st, 1968. All charges against him in the murder of his wife were dropped. It's so... The fact that he um, was calling into the editor and being like, these are where the bodies are. And then he calls again and is like, there's going to be more murders. Like, this is such a... Just a case that has so many different levels between... There is a rabbit. Sorry. I get so... Oh, it's a cat. I was like, there's a rabbit outside, but it's just a cat carrying on. Um, This case has so many different layers and levels. And it's just from the tipping off, the confess- confessing almost, and then the patterns. And the fact that someone's husband was charged. Um, Thankfully, he he didn't keep having to go to prison, but I mean still three months for a crime you didn't do. Third on the list is Richard Valenti. So in 1973, Richard Valenti kidnapped two girls, a 13-year-old and 14-year-old on Folly Beach and took them to his home. There he put nooses around their necks in a shower stall, kicked their chairs out from under them and watched them die. Police discovered their remains 10 months later in shallow graves on the beach. So he was convicted and sentenced to two life terms. At the time, the law required that he serve only 10 years in prison before being eligible for parole. What? That seems such a short amount of time, but the law is the law. Police said he confessed to killing a third teen and was also charged with attacking five more young women, but never went to trial on those charges. He was denied parole for the 21st time in October of 2020 and died two months later. That's another one where you're reading this and I mean I just said like that seems like such a short time but he did get denied parole for 21 times um, so I guess you know it is what it is. Fourth on the list is a notable exoneration. So Michael Linder was sentenced to death in 1975 for killing a highway patrol officer. He was later found to have killed the officer in self-defense and was acquitted in 1981. That one I just really wanted to um, include because of the fact he was sentenced to death for it and then he was later acquitted. Um, Again, had he, you know, not been found out that it was self-defense, that's a crime he could have died for, um, when in reality it was self-defense and he was acquitted. So kind of just an interesting one to include. Fifth on the list is Todd Kolhep. So he was born March 7th, 1971 and is an American serial killer, sex offender, and mass murderer. So on November 25th, 1986, he was 15 years old when he kidnapped a 14-year-old girl in Tempe, Arizona. He threatened her with a gun, brought her back to his home, tied her up, taped her mouth shut, and raped her. 
Afterwards, he would walk her home and threaten to kill her younger siblings if she told anyone about what had happened. So he was charged with kidnapping, sexual assault, and committing a dangerous crime against children. In 1987, he pleaded guilty to the kidnapping charge and the other charges were dropped. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison and registered as a sex offender. While in prison, he obtained a bachelor's degree in computer science from Central Arizona College. Obviously, he was not physically in school, but just, I'm guessing, online or whatever. He used his time to do a degree. In August 2001, he was released from prison after serving 14 years. Then he moved to South Carolina, where his mother was living, and of course, why he's on this list. So... From January 2002 to November 2003, he worked as a graphic designer and began studying at Greenville Technical College in 2003. He transferred to the University of South Carolina Upstate the following year and graduated in 2008 with a Bachelor of Science and a degree in Business Administration Marketing. So he was able to get a real estate license on June 30th, 2006, And that was because he lied about the felony charge on his application. From there, he started a firm and he had been recognized as a top selling agent. He also had a private pilot license and owned several properties out of state, along with purchasing nearly 100 acres of land. And he fenced that property for $80,000. So there was a lot of money, I'm guessing, coming in and going out. A customer who sold her home to him or through him as a real estate agent remembered him as extremely outgoing and professional, but there's always a but. But she did also note that he would often talk about his guns and sometimes use different sexual inendos during their conversations. She just found this to be really off-putting. A woman who assisted one of his employees described him as angry and condescending towards them. And then a banker who worked with Colehep said he often watched porn, even at work, which is, again, just another level of strange and often a red flag. So Colehep also frequented a Waffle House restaurant where his behavior disturbed the waitresses to the point where the male cook began to take orders for them. So while he does sound, I mean, at first you're like, okay, he's pretty successful with different real estate, private plane license or private pilot license and owning all these properties but then that you know feedback about him is also like a huge red flag um it gets worse so he did murder three males and one woman in 2003 in a motorcycle shop the motive behind these murders is believed to be because he was a disgruntled customer I think we need to use a word a bit bigger than disgruntled I mean that is awful but it's also like allegedly because he couldn't return a motorcycle that he had purchased. So, I mean, again, it's just terrible. So fast forward to 2016. On August 31st, Kayla Brown, who was 30, and her boyfriend, Charles Carver, who was 32, went missing after they went to remove brush from one of Colehep's properties. So Charles was later found dead of multiple gunshot wounds on the property. And on November 3rd, Kayla Brown was found by police and she was chained to the wall inside a metal storage container on the property. Investigators had tracked her down after tracing the couple's last known cell phone signals, after which they heard banging noises coming from inside the container. So according to Kayla, she witnessed Charles being shot by Colehep 
And during her captivity, she was raped repeatedly and intimidated into not escaping after having been shown the graves of Kolheb's other victims. So Kolheb was arrested shortly after Kayla's rescue, and he later confessed to the past murders in exchange for allowing him to talk to his mother, give her a photograph, and transfer money to the college fund of a, chi- of a French child. So with that exchange, two bodies were discovered following his arrest. They were later identified through their tattoos as a husband and wife who had been reported missing previously. They allegedly were also hired to work on the property as well. The wife was actually one of the waitresses that was too disturbed to serve him in the Waffle House. So shortly following Kolheb's arrest, police discovered a number of seemingly joking product reviews for various items such as padlock, shovels, tailors, tasers and gun accessories on amazon.com and this was written by a user known simply as me so one review about a padlock stated solid locks have five on shipping container won't stop them but sure will slow them down till they are too old to care another written for a folded folding shovel read keep in car for when you have to hide the bodies and you left the full size shovel at home the reviewer's wish list page was listed as Todd Kolhep. So following his arrest, Kolhep claimed to his mother that there were many more victims. When his mother asked how many, his response was, you do not have enough fingers. In December of 2017, Kolhep wrote to the local newspaper claiming that he had many more victims who had not been discovered. Six on the list. Susan Lee Smith. She was born September 26, 1971. She's an American woman who was convicted of murdering her two sons who were three years old and 14 months. And this was in 1994 by drowning them in the East South Carolina lake. The case gained international attention because her false claim that a black man had kidnapped her sons during a carjacking. She was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years. According to the South Carolina Department of Corrections, she will be eligible for parole on November 4th, 2024. Number seven on the list is Dallin Forrest Bounds. He was also born in 1971 and was an American serial killer. His confirmed span of crimes is from June 26 to December 23, 1999. On December 23rd, after killing two acquaintances, he barricaded himself in with two women and then committed suicide. Police have confirmed and closed four murders in South Carolina and officials in Washington, suspect he was involved in several other murders. Number eight on the list. On July 7th, 2002, in South Carolina, Quincy Allen wanted to practice using a shotgun, so he decided to attack a 51-year-old homeless man who was sleeping. He was shot twice, but he did survive the attack. Three days later, Quincy killed a 45-year-old. After killing them, he drove to a nearby truck stop, bought a can of gasoline, and went back to the body. There, he doused it and burned it. On August 8th, after a confrontation with a Texas Roadhouse employee, Quincy shot a 22-year-old that had tried to intervene. He then chased after the employee to his house, setting his porch on fire. The next day, he set fire to the car of another Texas Roadhouse employee and then at random burned another. On August 12th, while robbing a gas station in North Carolina, he shot a 53- and 29-year-old. Two days later, he was arrested while sleeping in an abandoned car in Texas. Upon being arrested, Quincy Allen was sentenced to death. On the morning of December 2nd, 2009, Quincy Allen, along with a fellow inmate by the name of Mikhail Dean Mahid, planned to attack and kill a correctional officer. 
So after making shifts, the pair asked the corrections officer if they could go visit the basketball court. After escorting them there, they attacked him, stabbing him multiple times. He managed to resist and fight them off despite his heavy injuries. So the two then attempted to jump the fence, but after they were unable to escape, they began to tear up the common area. Even after guards used tear gas on them, they still refused to back down and then rubber bullets were used to subdue the pair. So following this major incident, both were stripped of their privileges, which were outside recreation, visitation, phone use, and canteen items. And in 2017, both were transferred along with all other South Carolina Carolina death row inmates to the Kirkland Correctional Institution in Columbia. Ninth on the list is Patrick Tracy Burris. He was born August 8, 1967 and was an American spree killer responsible for at least five known murders in Cherokee County, South Carolina in 2009. Over a span of six days, he shot and killed five people. His final known victim died of her injuries in the hospital on July 4, 2009. On July 6, 2009, police shot and killed him during a shootout in Dallas, North Carolina. His gun was matched by ballistic tests and the bullets used in the murders. Tenth on the list, last on the list, and the last person executed in South Carolina is Jeffrey Mott. So he was in prison and he, as he was convicted in the 1997 robbery and murders of his great aunt and another relative in South Carolina. Fast forward to 2007 when he was sentenced to death for strangling an inmate after a verbal altercation in their cell. So he pushed the inmate's body under the bed, ate breakfast, watched TV and smoked cigarettes and then dragged the body to a common room, kicked it and said, this is what stitch snitches get. So soon after his conviction, he began asking the South Carolina Supreme Court to skip any and all appeals and just be put directly to death. The court found him mentally competent to make that decision and executed him in 2011. And now for crimes in North Carolina, first on the list, the murder of the Lawson family taking place on Christmas Day in 1929. Charlie Lawson murdered his wife and six of his seven children. Days before, though, Charlie took his family into town to buy new clothing and take a family portrait. This would have been a bit odd for a working class rural family in this time, which has led to speculations that his killing spree was planned. On the afternoon of December 25th, Lawson first shot his daughters as they were setting out to go to their uncle and aunt's house. He waited for them by the tobacco barn until they were in range, then he shot them with a 12-gauge shotgun. Then he kind of had to double check that they were actually dead and he did so by bludgeoning them. He then placed their bodies in the tobacco barn. Afterwards, he returned to the home and shot his wife who was on the porch. As soon as the shot was fired, though, Marie, who was inside, screamed while the two small boys, James and Raymond, attempted to find a hiding place. Lawson then shot Marie and then found and killed the two boys. Lastly, he killed the baby, Mary Lou. After the murders, he went into the nearby woods and several hours later shot himself. The only survivor was his oldest son, who was a 16-year-old, that had been sent out on an errand just before committing the crime. This was also in Christmas Crimes, episode 38. And it I don't can't remember for sure if it was in Family Side, episode 47, but it definitely would fit that. So if you've not uh, listened to those two episodes... Those would be great to listen to, and they definitely tie into this first crime. Second on the list, Velma Barfield. She was born October 29th, 1932, 
and was an American serial killer who was convicted of one murder, but eventually confessed to six murders in total from 1969 to 1978. She was the first woman in the U.S. to be executed after the 1976 resumption of capital punishment and the first since 1962. She was also the first woman to be executed by lethal injection on November 2nd, 1984. Third on the list is Robert McDonald. He was born in 1943 and is an American former medical doctor and U.S. Army captain who was also convicted in August of 1979 for murdering his pregnant wife and two daughters in February 1970 while serving as a Army Special Forces physician. So he also proclaimed his innocence of the murders where he claims that the murders were committed by four intruders. They were three males and one female who had entered the unlocked rear door of his apartment at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and attacked him, his wife, and his children with instruments such as knives, clubs, and ice picks. Prosecutors have pointed to strong physical evidence attesting to his guilt, and he is currently incarcerated. Fourth on the list is currently the earliest person on death row, and that is Wayne A. Laws. So he was born 1960, and he committed first-degree murder in 1984, and his sentence started in 1985, and to this day, he is still on death row in North Carolina. Fifth on the list is Susie Newsom. She was born into a wealthy and notable family. She was named after her aunt, Susie Sharp, who was a North Carolina judge and first elected female chief of justice of a state Supreme Court in the U.S. So she went to college in Kentucky, and that is when she met Tom Lynch, who was also from a wealthy family. They got married in 1970. Following Tom becoming a dentist, they moved to South Carolina, which Susie was very glad about, as it created distance between her and her mother-in-law, the two did not get along at all, and the mother-in-law definitely did not approve of their marriage. In 1974 and 1975, they had two boys named John and Jim. Next, the family, Susie, Tom, and their boys would move to New Mexico. However, Susie was not at all happy about the move as she didn't like New Mexico at all. She felt that she was above it and the neighbors, neighbors there really noticed her hatred for New Mexico and her just generally acting out. They seen her really hit a, the family dog super hard with a plastic baseball bat and they noticed that the kids had bruises all over them. Um, one of their young children did receive a concussion and was actually hospitalized overnight for it. This, she said, was an accident from falling off the bed, though her husband, Tom, did believe her. The doctors didn't, and the doctors did call them into CPS. This is when things kind of just started to unravel for her. So in 1979, Susie and their kids moved to North Carolina. From there, she and the kids moved to Taiwan. They shared a home with another family there, and it just wasn't what she thought. Um, she ended up moving from Taiwan back to North Carolina within six months. And when she returned, she looked really ill, very sickly. And this is where her cousin comes into play. So Fritz was her cousin, though they weren't very close as her parents tried to keep their distance as Fritz and his father were very, very bizarre. So Fritz himself posed as a fake CIA agent. And prior to meeting Susie again, he had dropped out of college, though he said to his parents that his diploma would be in the mail. 
after he then started to work with his dad, who was an actual doctor. And then next, he lied again about being accepted into medical school. His dad would give him money for tuition and and living, and he would come back home every Friday. He was acting as if he was going to school, routine, everything. He kept this up for years, and his father finally found out, and he then just decided to employ him at his clinic again. So back to her and Fritz. She and him were getting close as she would often see him at the clinic she was going to. Around the same time though, she was trying to finalize separating with Tom. She would often use the kids um, and the custody as almost a type of ransom. She wanted to do all the court-related items in North Carolina, but every time even if they got close to almost finalizing, it just wouldn't be good enough. And then that's where she would use the custody as ransom and be like, you know what, if you want to see your kids, you're going to have to pay this much instead. Anyways, Tom, though, thought he could beat her at her own game and finally filed for divorce in New Mexico. And doing so, he also filed for full custody. So next, she would have a big blow up with her parents who she was living with. This was over Fritz and the relationship they were having. They were cousins, but they were not acting like it. They were in a relationship. And this would cause her to get her own apartment moving out from her parents' home. So now the divorce is finally finalized and she got her way as far as custody and financially things went. So she got the boys Uh, custody and Tom only could see them on certain occasions and then she did get um, a lot financially as well. So Tom's mother was mad about this result. She felt that Susie got the home court advantage with having it all done in North Carolina especially with who her aunt was and um, she just was not pleased at all. During this time, though, while Susie had won her court battle, she was very on edge and paranoid. So fast forward to 1984, Tom gets remarried. Three weeks later, the boys went to visit Tom, who's still in New Mexico now with his new wife. When the kids arrived, though, they look really ill. They were skinny and their toenails were starting to curl underneath, just really showing um, how little she was providing them. And they had also been taking vitamins that Susie and Fritz demanded they take. So in July of 1984, Tom receives a phone call from the Kentucky State Police as they found Tom's mother and sister dead in their home. And the police say it looks like a professional hit. So Tom has now lost his mother and sister and his father passed away seven months earlier and seeing his kids in such poor health, he really wants to just see the kids more often. So he says to his kids, what if you ask your mom to see me more? They replied, yeah, do you want us to come back with broken arms? So Tom knew there would be no reasoning with Susie, so he instead wrote Uh, to Susie's parents and her father actually agreed to testify for a new hearing for custody. So this enraged Susie and caused her to become even more paranoid. At this point, her apartment was already looking like Fritz's apartment and his parents and it just had ammo and guns littered throughout it. There was blankets covering all the windows. There was war propaganda posters throughout and it was just It definitely looked like someone who was just very paranoid and like tinfoil hats, that kind of thing. 
So about a year later, in mid-1985, Fritz convinced a 21-year-old by the name of Ian Perkins that he needed his help taking out communist drug traffickers for the CIA. So Ian Perkins, who reportedly believed he was actually auditioning for the federal agency, drove Fritz to Winston-Salem. This is where Susie's parents and grandmother lived. All three were found dead about a half mile from where Ian dropped off Fritz. The 21-year-old Ian Perkins, who confessed to being the driver, wore a wire in three different conversations with Fritz, and the closest he got to a confession was on the morning of June 3rd, and that's when Fritz said to Ian he would write a paper saying you were not knowingly involved, that you believed you were on a convert mission for the government. He then finished out the conversation with, look, I've got things to do. I won't see you again. Fritz was then tailed by police to Susie's apartments. There, they loaded up their vehicle with camping equipment, Susie's two sons, and the family dogs before driving off. Police attempted to, to surround Fritz and the family who were in the, the car with him, and that's when Fritz fired a machine gun at them before taking off again. He pulled over again and fired a machine gun a few more times, then the car exploded. Detectives believe the bomb was under Susie's seat, and her body was found blown apart in a nearby culvert. She was 39 when she died. Fritz lived for a few moments before dying in his own pool of blood. An autopsy revealed the boys, who were then 10 and 9, had been poisoned with cyanide and shot in the head before the explosion. Ian Perkins was the only person charged, and he served four months for being an accessory as he was the driver on the night of the murder of Susie's parents, though it is heavily believed that Fritz killed Tom's mom and sister in Kentucky as well. That's just a crazy, crazy case. I think there has been a couple books written about it, and it's just like... It's really a long, I know that was a longer deep dive, but it's just so crazy. Um, sixth on the list is Blanche Kisser Taylor Moore. She was born February 17th, 1933. She's an American convicted murderer and possible serial killer from North Carolina. She's currently awaiting execution for her boyfriend's 1986 arsenic poisoning. She's also suspected of the death of her father, mother-in-law, and first husband, and the attempted murder of her second husband in 1989. She is one of two women currently on death row in North Carolina. Seventh on the list is the Eastburn family murders. These were murders of Catherine Eastburn and her daughters, Kara and Erin, which occurred in Fayetteville, North Carolina in May of 1985. In 1986, U.S. Army Sergeant Timothy Hennis was tried and convicted for the three murders. In 1988, his conviction was overturned on appeal and he was acquitted the following year. However, in 2006, the sheriff's office obtained DNA evidence linking Hennis to the crime. Despite the Fifth Amendment's double jeopardy clause prohibiting retrials after acquittals, the U.S. Army was able to initi initiate prosecution and trial proceedings against Hennis under the dual sovereignty doctrine. In 2010, he was tried and convicted by the Army Court for the triple murders and sentenced to death. That one was an absolute must to include um, the fact that he was first convicted, then acquitted, and then technically he usually wouldn't be able to be 
convicted again. But the fact the U.S. Army was able to start the prosecution and the trial is just, it's a must, must include a very interesting case. Eighth on the list is Barbara Sager, born October 30th, 1948. She's an American woman who was convicted in 1989 of murdering her husband, Russell. And that took place a year earlier in 1988. So Russell was shot while in bed. Barbara reported the shooting as accidental. Her first husband, though, died in similar circumstances. So perhaps a pattern there. Ninth on the list is Henry Lewis Wallace, born November 4th, 1965. He's an American serial killer who killed 11 black women in South Carolina and North Carolina from March 1990 to March 1994. He is currently awaiting execution at the Central Prison in so the police then executed multiple searches of the home between late August and October, and they arrested him on September 9th, 2021 on charges of grand larceny, and that was related to him stealing the Jeep. So on October 9th, a month later, investigators found a bee box used for beekeeping on a secluded section of the property. Inside were a number of Edna's personal belongings, including her pocketbook, keys, jewelry, and other items. So a yogurt cup was later tested, and it revealed that it had contained traces of a sedative, a pain reliever, and a muscle relaxer. This is absolutely fatal when mixed. So during the search of the bee box, authorities also found personal items belonging to a missing massage therapist named Nancy Rago, including her passport and license, the missing woman's relatives confirmed that Rago and Prince had been in a relationship before she disappeared in November of 2017. So Daniel Prince, who's 59, ple pleaded guilty to the kidnapping and murder of Edna and waived his rights to potentially challenge his conviction or sentence at a later date. As part of the plea agreement, he will not face the death penalty, though. He will also not face federal prosecution for the murder of Nancy Rago, who's 66, Dolores Sellers, 88, and Lee Goodman, who was 61, three deaths he had been linked to, according to police. While this is fairly recent, it's not new for him at all, as he's a very violent criminal history, including a 1997 conviction in Michigan for kidnapping another woman, and he was sentenced to 13 to 30 years and released after 12. And he also has other convictions as well. And last on the list is the most recent person on death row. That's Tillman Freeman III. He was born in 1987. In 2017, he committed first degree murder and his death sentence started this past April. So that wraps up today's episode for the most sinister crimes for our Sunday scaries for the Carolinas, South and North Carolina. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was rather long, so you might need to get a couple more coffees here. Um, but I really appreciate you guys listening and tuning in. I really enjoy these, so I'm glad uh, that you are also enjoying them. So that wraps up today's episode, and I will see you next Sunday for more Sunday Scaries by Expresso Crime. Bye for now.